Thomas Edison, Richard Branson, John F. Kennedy, Mozart, Michael Jordan, Will Smith. That sounds like a list of highly successful titans in a variety of vocations. Why is it that we rarely hear that they have or had ADHD? And you know what we hear even less about? Serena Williams, Emma Watson, Mel Robbins, Whoopi Goldberg, Agatha Christie, Aaron Brockovich, Cher. Yeah, the successful women navigating ADHD. And that's exactly why I started this podcast, ADHD for Smartass Women. I'm your host, Tracy Atsuka. I'm a lawyer, not a doctor, a lifelong student, now a coach. I'm also the creator of Your ADHD Brain is A-OK, a system that helps people like you figure out what they should do with their life. And we're here today to talk ADHD, your strengths, your symptoms, your workarounds, and how you proudly stand out instead of trying to fit in. I credit my ADHD for some of my greatest gifts. And you know what? I spy a happier life for you, too. So without further ado, a shiny new episode is starting now. Hello, I am Tracy Otsuka, and I wanted to welcome you to episode number 141 of ADHD for Smartass Women. Regardless of when you're listening, I hope you are having your best day this week. So before we start, I just want to make a quick announcement that I will be running my free Five Days to Fall in Love with Your ADHD Brain Master Series again, beginning on October 11th, and you can go to tracyoutsuka.com forward slash I love my brain for more information or to sign up. So over the last couple of months, I have had so many of you, our listeners, send me messages asking me to interview our next guest. So I took the time to go to her website and I loved it. And then I went to her TikTok and oh my God, I love that even more because she was there in person giving tips on how to get your laundry done and your kitchen and refrigerator organized. You know, all those things that our ADHD brains often struggle with. But beyond that, what came across to me in her TikToks was just how kind she is and so likable and she makes everything so simple. And I just felt like I've known this woman forever. So I am personally delighted to welcome Casey D- Davis with Struggle Care to our podcast. Casey Davis is a licensed professional therapist. She's an author, a speaker, and the person behind the mental health platform Struggle Care. Casey's compassionate and practical approach to self and home care for those dealing with mental health, physical illness, and hard seasons of life have netted her over a million followers on social media in less than a year. Her book, How to Keep House While Drowning, has sold over 27,000 copies and is currently an Amazon bestseller. Casey Davis began her therapy journey at 16 when she entered treatment for drug addiction and mental health issues. After getting sober, she became a speaker and advocate for mental health and recovery. Here we go again, right? Evidence that our best purposes give meaning to our past. Professionally, though, Casey has worked most of her career in the field of addiction in roles such as therapist, consultant, and executive director. She lives in Houston with her husband and her two daughters. Casey, did I get all of that right? That was perfect. (laughs) Wonderful. So can we talk about your ADHD diagnosis first? Would that be okay? Absolutely. So what were the circumstances surrounding it? Oh, this is just the best story. So I actually am recently diagnosed. Okay. So I was diagnosed earlier this year and about a year ago, I started my TikTok channel and I started posting videos of me cleaning and these sort of funny ways that I have learned how to hack my own mind and making care tasks easier for me. Now, I had no idea this was related to ADHD. I just kind of thought, oh, I'm someone who gets overwhelmed by cleaning. And I had sort of developed a lot of these compensatory behaviors over my lifetime to kind of get through life. And as I was posting these hacks, these tips, I started getting a pretty big following. And a large number of that following were people that had ADHD. 
And I would get questions, you know, oh, do you have ADHD? And I'd say, no, I, I don't have an ADHD diagnosis. Um, these are just things that have helped me. And, you know, the more that I made these videos, the more people who follow me would go, you know, Casey, are you sure you don't have ADHD? Because I have ADHD and I relate to everything you're saying. These hacks are the first things that have ever helped me. And I would say, you know, I don't have an ADHD diagnosis. I've read the criteria. I don't think I fit it. I just, you know, I relate to a lot of ADHD content. And so, you know, we go a few more months. And I mean, people just continued to say, Casey, seriously, have you been evaluated? <laughs> and it got to the point where I was like, well, maybe, maybe I should. And at the time, you know, I kept being very clear, I do not have an ADHD diagnosis. And it wasn't because I, you know, didn't want to associate or I thought there was anything wrong with that. Really at the time, my fear was I didn't want to look like I was sort of capitalizing off of a diagnosis or pretending to have a diagnosis in order to gain a niche following. I wanted to be really clear. And, and people just kept saying, I get that. That's great. But seriously, maybe get evaluated. So I was seeing a psychiatrist at the time because of some postpartum depression that I experienced in early, well, really the whole year of 2020. I had a baby three weeks before the world shut down from COVID. And I basically spent a year with my baby and my toddler in isolation. And I was working with this, this kind of postpartum group that only worked with women for their first year, and then they transfer you out to someone else. So I get transferred to this new psychiatrist. The first time I meet with her, I say, yes, okay, I've got the depression. Yes, I'm on some SSRIs. But can I also just ask you about ADHD? And I really lucked out because the woman that I was speaking to had a lot of experience with ADHD, particularly ADHD in women and adults. And a lot of times, adults have a hard time getting a correct diagnosis because the picture that we have of ADHD is a, a school age child. And, you know, I, I was pretty successful in school until my addiction interfered. And then after my addiction, I was again, very successful in school, higher education. And so I kind of thought, well, I, I couldn't possibly have ADHD. I did well in school and I've done well in my career. But when I talked to this doctor, I said, you know, this might sound nuts, but I have this TikTok channel. And I literally just laid it all out. I was kind of embarrassed to tell her, like, I think I might have ADHD because people on TikTok are telling me that. <laughs> yeah. Right. But she said, well, tell me why you think so. And this was one of the things where I was actually grateful I was on a virtual, like on my laptop, because I took my laptop into my kitchen and I showed her my kitchen. And I said, well, for one thing, I can't seem to do anything unless it's on a highly ritualized system. I can't seem to do any kind of list or ritual unless it's written down and I can physically look at it. Like I do the same things every night to close down my kitchen. But if I don't look at my list thousand times while I'm doing it, I will forget something. I have to have things in front of me. I have to have things visible or I forget they exist. I have to have things on these big intricate systems or I can't get them done. Simple things like laundry. And as I was talking to her about that, um, I probably talked for about five minutes and she said, okay, well, I do want to tell you that what you're describing is a very classic presentation <laughs> of adult ADHD. And she asked me a lot of questions about my childhood. And I shared with her that I had an early diagnosis of auditory processing disorder. She said, well, there's a very high correlation between auditory processing disorder and ADHD. I said, I, I also am dyslexic and have dyscalculate. And she said, well, there's a very oh. high correlation between those learning disorders and ADHD. And these are things that are missed in girls a lot, particularly because ADHD isn't about not being able to pay attention. It's about not being able to regulate your attention in the presence of boredom, fatigue, or distraction. And she said, and the reason why it gets missed is because if you genuinely enjoy school, then you're going to pay attention. And because I shared with her, you know, I always paid attention in class. I enjoyed learning, but I never did my homework. Oh, geez. Um, yeah. Because I would either, I would tell myself, oh, I'll remember that and not write it down. Or I would write it down and then forget that, the, that it exists. And she explained to me that, you know, okay, so you're able to perform really well 
when you're in a structured environment, but when you're not in a structured environment, you cannot regulate your attention, your emotions, all these things. I said, well, yeah, basically. She said, yeah, well, that's a pretty classic presentation of ADHD. She asked me about my addiction history and I shared that with her. She said, well, I mean, I, you know what I'm going to say here? There's a very high correlation between addiction and those that have ADHD. And it got down to even like oddly specific things. She asked me if I'd ever had any tics. And I said, you know, there was one period of time um, shortly after my parents' divorce where I developed a vocal tick where I would talk and I would kind of make these little noises. And she said, well, listen, there's a high correlation between children that develop vocal tics and ADHD. So it was interesting, even going through some things in my childhood that she said made sense and then explained to her the way I was functioning as an adult. And she said, listen, I'll send you the the rating scale and all of that, but I, I'm telling you right now, you can take it to the bank. This is ADHD. You know, it sounded like she really knew her stuff, oh. which is rare. I mean, you really lucked out in that way. You know, I was just at a the first dinner party. We were all, you know, we're all double vaxxed and, and all that. And we sat outside. But the first dinner party that I've been to since COVID and one of my friends was just talking about, and I, you know, you can just tell all of the, she's got all of the ADHD traits and she was told, nope, you're a woman, you've been successful, you know, you've got everything together, at least outwardly. And it's not ADHD. So, you know, and this is happening today. So Thank God you got the right professionals. So what changed since you've been diagnosed? Has anything changed? Well, I did start taking medication. And we started out with Vyvanse. We started out with a low dose. And I I was just so surprised how much it helped. It helps me primarily with task initiation. And the way that I describe that is that, you know, it used to be that if I'm sitting in a chair and I'm thinking to myself, I need to go do my laundry, the transition from getting out of that chair into doing the laundry was like walking through molasses. It was so difficult to sort of psych myself up mentally to do it, to get my body to start moving. And and I used to think, oh, I, I struggle with motivation. I struggle with the motivation to do my laundry, but that's not really true. You know, motivation is a desire and a drive and a recognition of the value of something. And I did want to do the laundry. What I was struggling with was task initiation. And once I started on a medication, what I found was that the transition between sitting in a chair and getting up to go do the laundry, it felt as though somebody had greased the rails. There was no resistance anymore. And not that it fixed everything, And really the most important thing that it helped, it really helped the depression. The hardest part of my postpartum depression was energy fatigue. And I started looking back on the postpartum depression that I had experienced, that it had gotten a lot better. And I have an interesting experience with depression. I've had two Outside of addiction, because there was obviously a lot of depression and addiction, but outside of of addiction, there's two times in my life where I experienced a depressive episode. And a depressive episode, you know, according to the DSM, is a period of at least two weeks that's marked by, and then it kind of gives you a list. And the things on that list are like feelings of hopelessness, difficulty, changes in appetite, either not eating enough or overeating, changes in sleep, either sleeping too much or not sleeping enough. And so there's this whole list. And what I recognize is that in both times in my life where I experienced this depressive episode, I didn't really have a lot of the emotional traits of a depressive episode. I didn't feel any negative self-concept. I didn't hate myself. I didn't loathe myself. I didn't think that I was worthless but I had a lot of the physiological traits. I had trouble sleeping or I was tired all the time and I had no energy. And I felt this sort of hopelessness, not about life in general, but just that there's nothing to look forward to. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I feel emotionally flatlined. So it's not that I'm sad. It's that I'm numb. It's that I feel apathetic. 
It's that all I want to do is crawl into bed and go to sleep. And the two times that I had this these depressive episodes were very different. The first time that I had it, I was working overseas. I was in a foreign country. I was working and I got into this kind of slump where I would go to work. I would do my work. I would come home. I would get in bed. I would turn on the TV and I would watch TV almost compulsively until 3 a.m. And then I would go to bed and I would wake up and do the same thing. I wasn't eating enough. I wasn't showering. I wasn't talking to anyone. And I was sort of this excessive media intake. And I wasn't, well, and so let me tell you about the second time. The second time was postpartum with my second baby, where I was on my phone all the time. I was sitting on the couch all the time. I couldn't get myself to do anything around the house. I was sort of bare minimum taking care of me and the kids. And all I wanted to do was either look at my phone or crawl into bed and go to go to sleep. And what I recognized about both of those times is that although they were very different, right, single in a different country, married with kids at my house, what they had in common was isolation, number one, right? Being in, a, in another country, not being surrounded by people, being postpartum and lockdown. They were isolation. Two was boredom. I was bored at my job at the time, and I was obviously bored with you know the minutia of the postpartum period. And that my intake of media at the time wasn't about numbing out. It was about feeling something because I felt so numb that, you know, getting engaged with TV or media or social media was allowing me to feel something. And I went back to my doctor and I said, you know, I've been thinking about this depression and this might sound crazy, but I think my depression is related to my ADHD. You know, I know that ADHD has to do with sort of a misregulation of dopamine and some other neurotransmitters in the brain. And it really seems like when I get into periods where I am isolated and bored, I start to feel completely numb and apathetic. You know, that's so interesting because one of the things that those of us with ADHD need more than anything is connection. I know Ned Hallowell calls it vitamin K. <laughs> mm -hmm. So that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. All the things that they talk about that that regulate the interest and, mm -hmm. and the meaning of someone with ADHD, novelty, challenge. Yep. And I was didn't have any of that. And it was like my brain just couldn't keep up. And 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 all of this story is to tell you that when I got on ADHD meds, it did more for the depression than anything I had tried. Wow. Well, and that would indicate, at least to me, I'm not a medical professional, but that the depression was because of the ADHD. That was my conclusion. Than, yeah, the other way around. Mm -hmm. Huh. So the, That's really interesting. Yeah. The biggest thing that's changed for me was, you know, I talk more about ADHD on my channels with my friends and there was this other feeling of, it was grief. You know, I, mm. I had done a lot of work and anyone that knows my work knows that it's all about self-compassion and giving yourself grace and sort of stop thinking that certain things in life are these moral obligations and I had just done so much work over my life and worked so hard to get to a place where I said, you know, this is me. I'm messy. I forget things. And that's okay. It's okay that I'm like that. I have lots of great qualities. And, and then I got this diagnosis and it was like, there's a reason I'm like this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's not like, oh, and now I finally know it's okay to be like this. It was more just this grief of I had to work so hard to accept myself. And if I would have known earlier in my life that I had ADHD, I wouldn't have had to work that hard to not hate myself. Well, and the thing about it is, again, this is another example of an ADHD diagnosis that basically happened by accident. Mm-hmm. And so I question, because had you not started the TikTok channel, who knows when you would have figured this out, right? Yeah. And it made my whole life make sense. Yeah. It makes sense and why I was, you know, 
thrill-seeking and getting addicted at such a young age. It makes sense why I wasn't able to do homework and why, you know, I was developing because I, I am an intelligent person. I was developing these compensatory behaviors at an early age, but then I would get into situations where the compensatory behaviors didn't work anymore. And then suddenly there was this deep failure that seemed like it was out of nowhere. Yeah. So can I ask you, um, you had all this mental health training. So what is going on in mental health where therapists aren't taught about ADHD? Well, you know, I can tell you- in women, I should say, in women, right? Well, we're not, talk- we're not taught about ADHD at all. I mean, mm-hmm. my experience having a master's degree in counseling, I had, I went to school for three years for that master's degree. I had one class- And the one class is called Abnormal Human Behavior. And that's the class where you learn the DSM. And the DSM is the Diagnostic and Statistics Manual that describes all of the different mental illnesses and neurological illnesses and various, you know, neurodivergent neurotypes. One class. And so I did learn about ADHD, but I also was learning about major depressive disorder and OCD and autism spectrum disorder. It's one class where you're learning all of these and you're learning the criteria out of the DSM and you're being tested on the criteria out of the DSM. You don't get this deep dive into any of the, unless you're taking a specific elective, you don't get a deep dive into any of these disorders and how they actually show up in all of their various ways. And so, yeah, I knew the criteria for ADHD, but unless you fit that criteria exactly and on its face, I don't recognize it unless as a counselor, I am taking more steps to learn. And I will say that my counseling degree, it gave me a lot of foundation so that I can go take continuing education in ADHD and learn a ton because I already have the the foundation, the psychological knowledge to understand what people are talking about. Mm -hmm. But unless a person with a master's level education in mental health has taken specific effort to educate themselves in ADHD, they, they are not equipped to know anything other than what ADHD looks like on their face, unless they have specifically taken the time to get experience or knowledge in ADHD. But we do not come out of counseling school equipped to really assess ADHD. So if you wanted to, could you take a class specifically on ADHD or would it be part of, you know, a number of different um, mental health conditions? Well, it depends on what school you go to and it would be an elective. So you could choose to do that. And of course, you know, I choose now to take my continuing education credits in ADHD and and other sort of things that interest me that my experience is in, but it's not something that I was taught in school, except for that one little sliver of the class as a requirement. And so your continuing education credits that you take, if you take them in ADHD, what is that training like? I mean, is it just, again, very topical? Do they talk about emotion or because the DSM doesn't mention emotion, there is no emotion component? My experience, and you know, each sort of continuing education is different, but my experience is that I've gotten a lot more out of a continuing education because they'll typically bring in an expert, an author Mm -hmm. that wrote a book. And, mm-hmm. you know, experts, they all have their strengths and their limitations, but I've, I've learned a lot more through doing it that way. Okay. That's good to know. <laughs> um, I think I had heard, and I can't remember what medical expert told me this, but that he had, I think, 30 minutes of discussion around ADHD, and that was for medical school. So... We can see why we're in the position that we're in right now. Oh, totally. And I think just like my provider mentioned, when we talk about, can you pay attention? It's not that people with ADHD can't pay attention. It's that for someone who's neurotypical, their attention regulation is based around importance and ours is based around interest. But that means that, again, if you have a child that is interested in school, they like school. 
You're not going to see that type of distractibility in school that you might see with someone who's not interested in school. And there's just a lot of ways in which it's hard to suss out these things. Another thing is, you know, I went to drug rehab when I was 16 years old. I went for 18 months. Wow. And one of the things that that they sort of honed in on while I was in rehab was that I was constantly correcting people and interrupting people and not listening. And the way that they conceptualized those traits was that I was being selfish, that I was sort of a know-it-all. And to be fair, I was selfish and I was a know-it-all, okay? But they were sort of identifying, you know, we're trying to give you this feedback on how you can get better and solve this addiction, but you're always interrupting us. You're always assuming you know what we're going to say. You're always sort of correcting people from across the room when you hear them. And and so they're trying to give me these tools to help me with my addiction recovery. But in that, I sort of went through this very heavy behavior modification where I learned hey, you can't interrupt people when they're speaking to you because A, they find that rude. B, you look like an asshole. <laughs> and, you know, C, you know, it's good to, to listen because you may not know what they're going to say, yada, 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 right? So I learned how to curb that behavior. So, okay, I, now I don't interrupt people. I don't finish people's sentences. I don't do these things. So, you know, 15 years later, I'm taking this ADHD assessment. It says, do you interrupt people? Well, no, I don't. Do you finish people's sentences? No, no, I don't. But what I do is that when someone's talking, before they have finished what they're saying, I already know what they are saying, how they're going to end their sentence, and I know what I'm going to say in response. Now, I know not to interrupt them, but what I do is I hold that thought about what I want to say in my head, and all I can think about is what I want to say and listening for the appropriate pause that I can say it, which means I'm not actually hearing what they're saying anymore, and I will forget what I want to say if I don't think about it really, 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 really hard. So... If you're looking at me and you're going, oh, she doesn't interrupt. She doesn't fix people. So she's not ADHD. But it's not just about the external behavior. And I, we see this in all sorts of neurodivergent people, whether it's ADHD, autism. You can make me act differently. You can make me not have the quote unquote external symptoms, but you didn't make me any less ADHD. Right. You could you could through behavior modification get someone with autism to learn how to make eye contact but you didn't make them less autistic. Right. You just taught them skills. Right. And so it was hard for me, and I think it was hard for other people to recognize it because I learned how to navigate. And as a woman, I think we experience a little more pressure around some of the people pleasing, you know, don't be loud, don't be interrupting, don't do those sort of things. And so I got good at that. Or I would read, you know, I have trouble finishing projects. And I would think, I don't have trouble finishing projects. I just redid my whole third floor and it looks beautiful and it's all done. And, and I got it from my chair. Now, not to mention, I actually had to have my mom fly in for the weekend to get it done because I know that it's much more fun when someone's there. And I know that I'm much more likely to finish it when my mom is with me. And looking back every time I do a project with my mom, there's always a point towards the end where she's like, okay, now let's hang the pictures. And I'm like, Ugh, I don't want to, let's do it later. And she's like, no, 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 let's just do it now. And I never really connected, hey, I wouldn't be finishing projects if it weren't for this other person sort of pushing me. I lose interest and I'm done. And not, but not only that, you know, we get this room done. My mom goes home and I did, I redid this room probably six months ago. It's the room I'm in right now. I kid you not, on the landing, you know, you stairs where they go down and then they turn and there's a little landing. On the landing are like two boxes and three tools yeah. <laughs> that I use to put this room together and I have not put them away. And I realized even when I finish a project, what I'm not looking at was zoom out. I don't put anything away after the project. That is not completing something. That last 5%. Yes. 
So can I ask you, um, you mentioned that you had early diagnoses of auditory processing uh, disorder, dyslexia, and dyscalculia. Mm -hmm. How did that play into all of this? I'm just wondering if you ever thought, well, those were the issues rather than, you know, anyone ever considering ADHD. Because, I mean, I've had that experience, certainly with my son, where you get the ADHD diagnosis and it's like, okay, we're done. That's it. And then later on, all of these other things unfold because, you know, comorbid conditions. I mean, we, we have a lot of them. Yeah. And I, I had to kind of go back and even ask my parents, you know, how did you guys even notice these things? And mm -hmm. because I was so young when they caught it, I was like in early grade school, maybe third, second or third grade. And she was like, well, you know, it was just sort of the obvious ones. You were writing your B's as D's and stuff like that. And you transpose numbers and they did some testing and found that you, you met this. And the other part was that with the auditory processing, they were realizing, and I don't know what behavior they saw that sort of led them down this, but that if I can't see somebody's mouth moving, I have a difficult time understanding or hearing what they're saying. And so, you know, my parents immediately got me into some testing, figured out what it was, and then you know, advocated for accommodations. So they moved me to the front of the class where I could see the teacher. They told the teacher, you cannot turn around and write on the blackboard while you're talking or she will not be able to understand. And they put me through, I spent a whole summer doing a remedial program that worked with dyslexia and dyscalculia. And what I remember, of course, is sitting with the tutor and doing the workbooks. And when you finish the workbook, you get to go to the uh, prize closet and get the prize, right? You get your water gun, you get your stuffed animals. And after that summer, it was like a total non-issue. They really intervened kind of hard and heavy at a really young developmental age. And I've just, I've never had any other issues. Occasionally, when I'm very, very sleep deprived, I will... Uh, transpose letters, but that's it. I've never really, it's almost been a non-issue in my life. I forget that I ever had the diagnosis. Now I did remember, listen, since people started wearing masks, you know, oh. the auditory processing of course yes. is obvious because it's very, very difficult for me to understand people, particularly in stores when there's ambient noise and someone's saying something to me and I can't see their mouth move. And so that's been difficult. But none of those diagnoses have been debilitating to me. And I think probably because my parents had such early intervention. Which is so incredibly important, you know, as I was just alluding to. Well, my son is 19. He was diagnosed with ADHD at 12. We've had three neuropsych evaluations. He was just recently diagnosed with dyslexia. And we've known all along that there was something else. And the deal with dyslexia is if you treat it, you know, if you there's dyslexia therapy, apparently. If you do that very early on, then their brain, actually, neuroplasticity can change and it can accommodate what it is that they need in order to be able to read. And because he didn't get that, now he has to, at 19, his second year in college, has to go through three days a week of dyslexia therapy. And who knows what happens as an adult, right? Yeah. How quickly can his brain make those changes? So, yeah, I'm just all about the, you know, the integration. Everybody knows their one little piece, but someone needs to know all of it, right? So that we know what are the symptoms and what are the things that it could be. Yeah, and it can also, you know, rear its head later in life because like, for example, because I really liked school and I liked learning, I would listen in class and then I would absorb it. I would take it in. I mean, I would I would totally retain all of the information and the interconnected concepts, then I would not do any homework because of my <laughs> struggles around, you know, my own time management, my own working memory, my own sort of imposing external structure. But then I would take the tests and I would get 100s. Yeah, you're smart. <laughs> because you're right, because I was smart and I liked it and I, I understood it and I retained it. I also, though, was that was a compensatory behavior. And the only reason I was passing is because of the way that they weighted grades and the way that they taught school in grade school. Everything you're tested on in grade school is talked about during the class. Then I moved into high school where they're going, okay, we're going to go over chapters one and two in class, but then you're going to have to go home and read three and four and it's all going to be on the test. And I started failing. 
So that's where the addiction issues came in, huh? And I just didn't know. I did not know how to study. I did not know how to complete homework on my own time. And, you know, there were some emotional things going on at the same time of, uh, around, you know, feeling unworthy and really looking for meaning that contributed to the addiction. But in terms of the academics, you know, nobody noticed that I wasn't keeping up because I was doing fine. I was getting good grades. Even when teachers would get frustrated that I wasn't doing my homework, I was still being successful in school and moving on. Then I get into high school. It all falls apart. Then I finally get sober. I go to college. I have to relearn how to study, how to teach myself things, how to have structure around getting homework done. I had to teach myself all of that. And so there's just, there's ways in which these things can kind of go unnoticed because we're, we either are developing compensatory behaviors. This is what happened to me in math. Okay, I struggle mightily with math. And when they would teach us, here's how you solve this math problem at a very uh, beginner level, first grade, second grade, third grade. I never learned that. I never learned how to solve a math problem. But at that level, I had such high intellect that I could look at a math problem and use my logic to figure it out. I could just use logic. I wouldn't do it the way it was supposed to be done, but I would be drawing things. I would be sort of doing my own way of approaching it. And then I would get an okay grade. But at some point in learning math, it moves beyond something that you can just logic out. And you have to rely on formulas. And I didn't know how to do that. And nobody caught that until high, high level math. You know, your story is my son's exactly. And I say all the time, smart kids fall through the cracks. Wow. So um, <laughs> you are such a good storyteller. I don't even know where we went. We weren't supposed to go there, but man, it was powerful. So let's talk about TikTok. Can we make that change? It's Absolutely. a little lighter. Happy to. What in the world made you decide, I'm going to start a TikTok channel? Oh, my God. Um, my sister kept telling me, hey, get on TikTok. It's so funny. It's so funny. So I just got on like every other bored quarantine mom, right, to look at videos and scroll through. And I posted a few videos that nobody looked at. And then I posted the video of me cleaning my house, talking about this is how I break it down so I'm not overwhelmed. And this is sort of the famous five things tidying method that I use, where when I look at a room and I see a thousand things, I get very overwhelmed. And there are so many steps for, okay, pick up this thing. Now look at it. What is it? Where does it go? Does it have a spot? Okay, let's put it in that spot. Oh, it's in the other room. Let's go there. Oh, let's look at this thing. Or it doesn't have a spot. Where do I put this? And, I'm, and I do that twice and I'm fatigued and I'm like, oh my God, I don't see any progress. This is taking forever. So it was just awful. And I figured out at some point in my life that if I sort of broke it down into categories and turned it into a little ritual and almost a game that I could get through it a lot faster. And so I told myself, okay, there are not a thousand things in this room. There's only five things. There's only five things in any room. There's trash, laundry, dishes, things that have a place and things that don't have a place. And I would get a trash bag and I would pick up all the trash. So I wasn't thinking about each object or having to make decisions about each object or switch tracks with each object that I picked up. I was just sort of going on this single-minded mission to throw all the trash away. And then I would do the same thing with the dishes and the same thing with, right. And so I would kind of go through that and that's how I would get my room cleaned really quickly without feeling overwhelmed. So I made a video of this and it kind of went viral and people started asking questions. And this last year, the whole channel has really come out of this people asking me questions, people saying things like, I've always felt ashamed that I'm not tidy. I've always felt ashamed that I can't stay on top of care tasks. And me answering them and saying, there's nothing to feel ashamed about. Care tasks are morally neutral. They have nothing to do with being a good or bad person, with failing or succeeding in life. And there are a ton of reasons, both visible and invisible barriers, why someone might struggle to get these care tasks done. And you don't deserve to be shamed because you have a hard time with them. You deserve compassion. You deserve someone who can give you practical tips for where you are. And that's kind of how the channel sort of morphed. And we've been going on this journey together, me and all these followers, while I, you know, kind of get my house into this functioning space. 
And I think also the reason why TikTok, you know, it's like the right place, the right time, the right platform. As someone with ADHD, being able to just rip off a 60 second video of a thought and post is like perfect for the way my mind works. Right. And then someone asks a question and then I can video respond to that question. And I've always worked best this way. Anyways, if you ask me to talk for an hour about something, it's sometimes hard, but if you have someone asking me questions, engaging with me, the thoughts just start firing. And so it was just the perfect platform for me to just sort of talk off the hip and that it just kind of all came together. And I do now have, um, you know, an Instagram and a Facebook, but I have to really sit down and put a lot of effort into thinking about what to post on those, what to write, getting something written. And it's not effortless like TikTok is for me. And so I think that probably the combination of it just kind of being the right platform for my brain and also talking about something that I don't think really anyone else is talking about. You know, I can so relate to what you're saying if I have to just talk, there's so much to talk about. You don't even know where to start. But if people are asking you questions, then I can actually, you know, I'm good. Yep. I, I, I get that. But TikTok just scares the crap out of me. <laughs> You're telling me, though, it's easy for you. Yeah. I, and I think at the end of the day, I'm more of a teacher than I am a speaker. Uh-huh. I really want people to understand. And so when I, I can say a concept and then when someone tells me what it is they're not understanding – that kind of opens up like exactly where to go and and helping somebody understand and helping somebody make movement in their own life around these concepts. But um, yeah, I do. I like TikTok a lot. The thing about you though, Casey, is that you are so authentic and that is what just completely comes across. It's not one of these challenges where every, I mean, challenges, it's not one of, what what did I mean to say? It's not one of these, um, Ah, but I didn't mean channel. Oh. It's not It's not a specific, what am I trying to say? So, you know, in Instagram, it's not a feed. Yeah. It's not a feed where everything's all polished and you can tell it's all set up and no, you're just Casey and you're, and it's, I think that authenticity that makes people feel so good about themselves, right? That, well, look, she struggles too. And I would suspect that doing this TikTok platform has really helped you also stay on top of what it is that you want to stay on top of. Absolutely. It really introduced a lot of meaning into my life. I think, especially, you know, going back to talking about some of the depression being related to feeling bored and isolated, all of a sudden I was connecting with people. Yeah. And I was helping people. And I, I mean, I love, love being a mom. And I think it's such an important role. But a lot of the really, really heavy, important things we do as parents doesn't have the direct feedback loop. Like, you know, you, you know, I know I'm doing the right thing when I tell my daughter she has to take a bath, but she's screaming in my face about it. She's not going, thank you, mother. This was so life changing that you said this to me. Um, but to be honest, like the people on TikTok do, they're, they're hearing something and then giving you that direct feedback of, Hey, this was helpful to me. And if anyone kind of into Enneagrams, I'm a nine, which is the helper. And that really is meaningful to me to feel as though I'm helping people. And so it introduced a lot of meaning and fulfillment and passion into my life in a time where I really needed it. Can I ask you, how do you handle the nasty comments? I'm just thinking of, you know, rejection issues and yeah. Are you good at that? Yeah. You know, I'm not saying that I don't get upset, that I'm not bothered, but I do think that at a really, you know, going back to going through rehab, there were a lot of things that happened in rehab that were hurtful or damaging. And there were a lot of things that happened in rehab that were really, really helpful and beneficial to me. And one of them was building the ego strength to hear hard things. I was a pretty messed up kid and I had to hear some very hard things, some very hard truths about myself and my behavior and the way I was affecting people. And I also, you know, had some issues with self-worth. And so I took all criticism as this direct attack on my worthiness. And I got to unlearn a lot of that as a kid that, you know, you're worthy end of story. And that doesn't change because somebody has a criticism constructive or otherwise. And so I think a lot of that, what a lot of people with ADHD, you know, that experience that sort of rejection, sensitive dysphoria, I don't experience that as much right now in my life, just because of some of the really helpful therapy that I went through. 
And I think sometimes the hate comments, they are hurtful, but they also provide a really great opportunity. And, you know, I delete a lot of hate comments and some of them I respond to. And I think sometimes your responses are priceless. <laughs> I have to tell you, I mean, yeah. I'm just dying laughing. Well, and people ask me, you know, why do you respond to these comments? And I always say, well, it's, there's a couple of reasons. One is that, you know, these people aren't saying anything that we already hear in our own heads. And when I respond to somebody, and sometimes I respond kind of sassy, and I think that people appreciate seeing someone stick up for them. Because if they think, well, I'm like you, and, and you're not ashamed, you're not ashamed about how you are, then maybe I don't have to be ashamed either. And then sometimes I respond in a very calm manner and I educate somebody about, I mean, this is going to roll right off me because I could clearly, you just don't even understand this. And I think also giving someone and modeling for people a way to respond to the own critical voices in their head is such a great opportunity. And so, you know, I think that's why I think there is value in doing it. And sometimes I'm just, I don't think people realize that for every response like that I respond to, I've deleted 25 of them. And it takes a toll on you. I am pretty open about the fact sometimes I just want to tell people to F off. And so I do. (laughs) (laughs) No, I love that. So let's talk about what you came here to talk about finally. Can we talk about laundry? Absolutely. Why do we struggle so much with laundry? What the hell? I feel like laundry for me is like, it involves all of the executive skills that I am weak at. So, you know, first of all, it's multi-step and those steps cannot be done all at once. Like there's, there's this built in, you have to wait for it to be done. You have to wait for this. You have to wait for that. And, you know, with my working memory, I will put something in the washer and three days later, walk by the laundry room and go, oh shit. Totally. And it's all moldy, stinky. Yes. And then I'm overwhelmed or I can get it into the dryer three days later and then I'll pull it out of the dryer, but I don't have time to fold it right then. So I'll go do something else. Then I'll forget about it. Then I'll come back. Then it's wrinkled. Then I'm overwhelmed. So then I ignore it and procrastinate it because I don't know what to do. Right. Then I'm going to come back and maybe I'll try to fold it. My kids are going to pull it all off while I'm folding it. And I'm going to get frustrated with the stress management. And it's just, it's just a cluster. It's a long, long ritual and it's difficult for that so many reasons. You know, I never considered that it's the multi-step because you can be totally raring to go. I'm going to get this laundry done and then wall, right? Mm-hmm. You have to wait. And then by the time it's ready to, I guess, go into the dryer, you're like, nah, I'm out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can, I can get into the zone and put together a cabinet that has like 943 steps. Um, <laughs> but if in the middle of that, it was like, and now wait for the glue to dry an hour. Like, well, the next, the next half of this is never getting done. Totally. Okay. So what do we do to make it easier? You have a system. I have a system. Yeah. And, and really it starts by recognizing that being bad at laundry is not a moral failing because when we really believe there's one, you know, it's this moral obligation to be on top of your laundry, to never be behind on laundry. And if you are, you're a bad mom, you're a bad spouse, you're a bad partner, you're not a valid adult that really keeps us locked in this space where when we look at the laundry, we look at ourselves, if it's a moral obligation to be on top of your laundry at all times and you can't, then you're always going to look at you as being the problem. I'm not good enough at this. I am lacking something. I am failing. And the answer to that is typically, I just need to try harder. I'm lazy. I just need to try harder. So we continue to quote unquote, try harder And nothing ever gets better because what's wrong is not us, it's the system. And once we realize that laundry is morally neutral and that it doesn't matter how you do it and that it's just functional and the function is to create clean clothes. And if you're just living out of a clean laundry basket, there's nothing that's fine. You don't have to change anything about that unless you want to. We start to realize that there are no rules about laundry. It's just a functional process. You can do it any way that helps your brain get the task done. And once I realized that, it got me out of the box and getting creative about, well, how can I change my laundry system to fit my brain, not change myself to fit how laundry is, quote unquote, supposed to be done? So 
one of the things that I did, we in our house are blessed enough to have a really big ensuite closet. And the closet is connected to our laundry room. And the first thing I realized was that it was pretty silly that I was going from room to room to room every morning to get all three of us dressed, my two young children and me, because I'm the one dressing them. So I ended up moving all of our family's clothes into one closet. So we now have a family closet. Everyone gets dressed in one closet and it's right off of the laundry room. So when things come out of the dryer, they can immediately get put away. They don't have to go walking around the house. I also realized one day that it was really silly that I was folding like 90% of my clothes because that's my big stuck point is the folding. It's like, why am I folding fleece pajamas and baby onesies and underwear? And I really started to look at my laundry and realize 90% of this does not need to be folded. And so I, I switched my family closet into a no fold laundry system. I got some big cubes, cubbies from Ikea, a bunch of baskets, and I hang up me and my husband's shirts. And then I sort everything else unfolded into these baskets. So like I have girls' shorts, girls' pants, Casey's underwear, Casey's socks, Casey's lounge clothes, Casey's shorts, Casey's pants. And I just sit there on my butt with this huge pile of laundry and throw things into these bins. And then I close them. So that number one actually gets things put up in a way where I can find things when I need to find them. I also started setting a timer when I put things into the laundry or the dryer because I couldn't remember. So it's such a simple step, but I always set a timer on my Alexa and it reminds me and I go up immediately when the timer goes up to do the next step. Okay. So tell me, tell me how, because I do too. I have a timer on my Apple watch and it totally works, but there are times when I just kind of let it go. And then all of a sudden I'm like, stop, I just stop it. And then I forget. So you said you immediately get up. How do you, you know, how do you do that? Like, what are you saying to yourself? So you do it. So, I mean, there are days when I'll say, you know, oh, I'll do one more thing that I'll go up there. And then I forget. Yeah. And so I just kind of know, I just know, like, if I don't go now, I'm, I'm going to forget. And that's okay. It's okay to forget. But the other thing that I've done that has been helpful with that is that I started doing my laundry only on Mondays. I only do laundry on Mondays. Mm. And every, every Monday I do all the laundry. Now, the reason that's helpful for me is because with working memory, if I put something in the laundry, I forget about it. And then the timer goes off. And then if I don't go up there, I'll forget about it. But I started doing laundry on Mondays. And when I did that for about a month, laundry and Monday started being connected. And my brain sort of shelved laundry and Monday together in my short-term memory. So all day long, as I am aware it's Monday, I think periodically about the laundry. That's also my only main care task I have to do on Mondays. So I got laundry out of my working memories job and into my short-term memories job where I now associate Mondays with laundry. I wake up, it's Monday. Oh, it's laundry day. So that even if I forget something or if I forget to go up on the timer, maybe a couple hours later, I'll go, oh God, it's Monday, it's laundry day. Sort of in the same way that, and I still forget this, right? But like if you have a certain day where the trash pickup comes, eventually you kind of learn to associate whatever day that is with trash. And so those are the three things that I've done that have, that have sort of revolutionized my laundry. I only do laundry on Mondays and on Mondays I do all my laundry. I set a timer in between the steps. I stopped folding my clothes and I have a family closet. So I guess four things that I changed. And now for the first time in my whole life, my laundry is consistently done and available to me in, in a way that, that makes sense. So when you think about laundry now, how do you feel? I like it. <laughs> I, mean, I don't like it. Like I'd obviously rather be doing something else, but I, I get the... I, I went Positive from emotion. it being just like a total drudgery to like I kind of get the reward kick from it because I've put it into a system and I like systems. And when I accomplish something within a system, I, it feels rewarding to me. So you have discovered that by doing your laundry, the way you are now doing it and being successful at it, that actually kicks up your dopamine. Mm -hmm. Huh. 
I love it. Okay. Talk to us about the ADHD refrigerator. This is brilliant. <laughs> I haven't done it yet, Casey, but I'm going to go do it. Can you talk about it? Totally. So I realized I, I'm, been try- I'm not a big veggie eater. I don't really like vegetables, but I've been trying to feed my family more vegetables. And what I found was that I would go to the store, have all these high hopes and dreams, come home, put them where they're supposed to go in the refrigerator, which is the crisper drawer. And then I would forget about them. And I realized one day, you know, when my kids are hungry and they're whining about it and I need something quick, I'm opening the refrigerator and I am making a decision about what to make for them based on what I see in there. Because I'm thinking, I don't know what to make. And I'm opening it and looking around. And I realized, okay, I need to move this produce to a place that's visible so that when I open it and I go, what should I feed them? Oh, yeah, I have a cucumber. And so I realized that I need to take all of these condiments out of my door and put them into these crisper drawers. Because when I want a condiment, I know I want that condiment and I'll go searching for it. I and need- condiments don't wilt, right? right. It, it, this is brilliant. And I started putting my produce in the door so that when I thought, what am I going to feed these children? And I opened the door and I saw the produce, I would go, okay, I can get some of that. And I, it's been like that for a couple months and it's revolutionary. So I keep all my condiments in the drawers I keep all my produce in the doors, and now I am remembering to eat my produce. You have a comment on one of your videos that if you designed a refrigerator, it would be six feet wide, long, right, yes. and one foot deep. Absolutely, front row only. only be, yeah, front row space. Uh-huh. I just think that is brilliant because you're right. Like, when do the condiment, you know, is on the doors, and we've got a pretty big refrigerator. There's so many of them. Most of them I should probably throw out. But how often do we use those? You know, they could so go in the drawer. Mm-hmm. Love it. Absolutely love it. The other thing that you said that I'd love for you to talk about, because I just so agree with this, there is nothing wrong with paying for help. Amen. Yeah. And, and, you know, I pay for help and it's not something that I talk about a lot on my channel because I'm aware that it's a privilege and I really want to focus on giving tips that are most accessible to the most amount of people. So I never want to be like, well, just hire someone. But at the same time, I find that a lot of people feel this shame around hiring help with care tasks. They feel as though they, they should be able to do it themselves or they're failing if they ask for help. And I just, I like to challenge that for people. And can I say that the, a lot of people who feel the shame, it's never men, it's always women. Yeah, I mean, like, I don't know any man that feels exactly. shame about paying someone to mow their lawn. Mm-hmm. Um, or clean their house. Yeah, exactly. You kind of expect it, right? <laughs> yeah, and I really think that that shame or that embarrassment is related to having this moral view of care tasks, that it's part of your job as a woman. It's a part of your value as a woman. It's a part of your duty or responsibility to be good, not just to do them, but to be good at them. And I like to challenge that in people. And and I also think that people think that there's it's like a prescription drug, like you have to meet a diagnosis before you deserve the help. Oh. And it's not. Like you don't you don't have to like meet a diagnosis to like deserve to buy butter instead of churn it yourself. Right? And, and you don't have to milk your own cows and you don't have to knit your own sweaters and you don't have to clean your own house if you don't want to. You know, and you're either going to spend time or money getting care tasks done. They're and they're both equally morally neutral resources. There are people that have time and not money. There are people that have money and not time. There are people that have neither and have to figure it out. There are people that have both and have to prioritize. But you're going to spend either time or money on your care tasks, and they're just resources. They don't have any moral superiority which one you choose to get those things done. I love it. Couldn't agree more. Can you tell us a little bit about your book? Yeah. What made you decide to write it? What's it about? I decided to write it because I had so many people that started following me, you know, six months in that would ask questions and I would go, oh, I really wish I could just tell you to watch all the TikToks. And because my philosophy on care tasks really kind of comes down to six main principles because I found that I was really answering the same questions over and over and giving the same answers over and over. And they really went into these six main principles. So I decided to write a book 
so that somebody could kind of go and get that foundation. It's a very short book. I think it's like 60 pages. It's called How to Keep House While Drowning. You can get it on Amazon. And it's just sort of this little intro. And it's written so that you can read a chapter a day. The chapters are very short, one to three pages. Or you could read it all at once. I also wanted to write a book so that maybe you have a family member or a friend that really needs this message, but they don't have TikTok. And you can kind of give this to them as a sort of, you know, okay, let me fill you in on what we're doing here. Wonderful. We will have that in the show notes. We'll have a link to it. So you need to make sure that you give that to me. (laughs) Sure. So in fact, I think we already have it now that, yeah, I have this wonderful podcast producer who organizes everything now because, you know, I hired her because I needed her. (laughs) So what do you think the key to living successfully with ADHD is? Mm. I definitely think really same approach that I think with Kirtas. I think having a, a strong foundation of moral neutrality, you know, your, your neurotype is not a moral failing. It's just the way that you are. And I think having a self-compassionate inner dialogue around the way that you are and knowing that it's okay and that you might need to do things differently, being, being willing to embrace adaptive imperfection, being willing to embrace adaptive routines, being willing whenever it's possible to say, you know, the way that I am is legitimate and it's okay for me to change my environment to meet my needs. And there will be times or environments that you can't change. And that's when you try to develop new skills or you ask for accommodations. And at the end of the day, your neurotype is morally neutral. I just love when you use the term morally neutral. And it's interesting because I think my thought, certainly around, you know, these boring tasks that we struggle to do is oh, well, we're just too smart. We're just too brilliant to do this boring, mindless work. We need something more creative. And so I almost look at <laughs> I almost look at it as, well, my brain is such that, yeah, that's not good enough. It needs more than that. And so I, I think that's why I probably don't have the guilt around those things that I'm just not good at, you know, that are weaknesses of mine. I understand that. Um, and I don't care because look at all the strengths. So I just, I love that term that you use, morally neutral. Last question. What is your number one ADHD workaround? My, so it's really hard to pick, but I'll tell you the one that is like crucial in my life right now recently. You know, my platform Struggle Care has really taken off. I've got the TikTok, I've got Facebook, I'm writing books, I'm recording podcasts, I'm, you know, talking to people and, and selling online merchandise. And there's just so much I'm doing that I'm actually now doing quite a bit of desk work. And one of the things that is really difficult for me is the time blindness that happens when I get really focused on something. And so I actually have started using what's called a timer cube. Is that the Datex cube? I think so. It's like this, oh, I love it's that this thing. cube and it has increments of time on each side. So mine is a 5, 10, 20, and 30 minutes. When I turn the cube to whatever is face up, the timer automatically starts at that time. And this, this thing is helpful for a lot of reasons. It's really helpful for multitasking with or doing something that you don't like. So if I have to do something I don't like, I'll say, oh, I'll do it for 10 minutes and I'll take a five minute break and I can keep track of that. But I actually use it more for keeping time awareness. So if I have, you know, this podcast, I knew I was going to do this podcast recording and I knew I was going to do it at 1130 my time. So I sit down and it's um, 1120 and I think, okay, I have some time to do something else. So I pick up my phone and I say, I'm going to, I'm going to look at some of my comments for a while. Well, I'll turn my timer cube to five minutes so that it will alert me, hey, five minutes has gone by because I don't have that internal clock to remind me of that. And I'll start looking at my phone and then be late for the podcast recording. (laughs) Totally. Or I'll start working on social media stuff and be late to pick my kids up. And And I get so much anxiety over it. I'm either constantly looking at the clock and I can't focus or I focus on something and I lose track of all time. So I love that I don't have to pick up my phone to do it. I love that I don't have to set anything to do it. I just turn it. I just turn it over and I'm constantly all day long turning this cube 
as I'm working on things. And it's so helpful to me. I just, I got it on Amazon. I just typed in cube timer. You and me both. I, I think it is probably the number one ADHD workaround for me as well. And it allows me to get out of my head sometimes, you know, where I'm like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. And I have a deal with myself. All you have to do is 25 minutes. And somehow you can just get yourself into action and get out of your head and just flip that cube, right? And there it goes. And you got to, you got to start. And you know what happens when we start, right? <laughs> I can't, we can't, I can't stop. stop. <laughs> so Casey, are you working on something that you want to tell us about? So I, I am, I have a website. It's strugglecare.com. You can really see everything I'm doing on there. You can get links to buy the book. You can get links to my socials. It'll tell you about the podcast that I have not yet launched, but I'm pre-recording. It will give you lots of resources that I'm constantly adding to and and, you know, I'm going to start working on another book soon and, and that there's just always more to come. There's a shop there with lots of things that you can buy, small little guides and things. Um, so everything I'm working on is, is, is on that site and you could subscribe to it to get more info too. And that's strugglecare.com. Mm-hmm. Okay. We'll also have that in the show notes. So Casey, thank you so much for spending time with us here today. You are just an absolute delight and uh, so full of knowledge. Thank you so much. Absolutely. So that's what I have for you for this week. If you like this episode with Casey, please let us know by leaving a review. Our goal is to change the conversation around ADHD, helping as many women as we possibly can learn how their ADHD brains work so that they too may discover their amazing strengths. And you know what? Your reviews, they really do help in that regard. Okay. So I'll see you here next week. You've been listening to the ADHD for Smartass Women podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Outsuka, and we're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Not coincidentally, ADHD for Smartass Women, it's also the name of our free Facebook group. We're a totally smartass community of successful, ambitious women who share our ADHD wins, questions, and workarounds. Join us at tracyoutsuka.com, where you can also find more information on our Your ADHD Brain is A-OK system. I spy a happier life for us, and I'll see you again next week.